And welcome to part three of the Paul Joyce interview, the final part, which takes place in multiple locations, so sorry if the background noise changes. As time goes on, things can uh, slip into focus more easily sometimes. And if you look at the shows of the 70s, 80s and early 90s, and this one has any merits over and above the ones which surround it, that was because it, it, it cost me dearly in my career to actually achieve that um, and I'm not sure that too many people would, would make that sacrifice in fact they didn't you know and they weren't and those who had the talent weren't given the opportunity to do that. you know Philip Savile would have been very interesting I'd love to see a Philip Savile Doctor Who yeah be fascinating <laughs> wouldn't it you know yeah. but the, he wasn't given one because it would be a Philip Savile Doctor Who that's my point. They gave me one because they didn't know who I was. But after they found out, they wouldn't give me another one. Sure. That's the point. And that demeans them, I think. <clears throat> You're the, exec- the you know, famous or infamous executives know that there's a pool of, re- of reasonable talent available almost all the time. And the talent they want are the ones who are anonymous, efficient, and can just call the shots and get the job done by the end of the day. That's all they want. They don't want uh, anything uh, extraordinary or different. Uh, so my question mark isn't over this pool of, of kind of um, similar skill talent, which is really a technical talent. It's not, it's not artistic talent. It's, there's, a, there's a great difference, you know? It's like a difference between... Art photography and you know, and street photography. Um, the the failure is is at the level of the executive because there was a great um, Hollywood executive called Ned Tannen, and he brought forward the careers of at least six great writers. Robert Zemeckis was his friend, you know. I mean, Ned almost employed me, he employed um, Mike Figgis to do internal affairs I missed out, Figgis not on that project um, that was Mike's project and he, he made a, it's a fantastic film Richard Gere very envious of, of Figgis' ability I think he's a wonderful director um, Ned was one of those executives who would look for talent he was like Roger Corman but at the level of Paramount or Universal, high-end executive. I'm not sure if those people exist anymore you know, in Hollywood, but certainly David Rose was one. But I don't see Rose's legacy. Waring, Michael Waring didn't become David Rose too. He became Michael Waring. The, the great I am Michael Waring, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't demean his talent as a producer, it's, it's very high. But he wasn't like Rose, who would be transparent 
and allow the director to come through as a writer. I think Waring was always... Here it's coming. His show. And I wouldn't say that he was a small talent at all. I think he's a very, very uh, fine producer. But the smaller talents, like Nathan Turner, would be protective of their own territory. I mean, if somebody comes in and changes the face of Doctor Who by doing one, or if they let me have another or two or three shows, suddenly someone says, well, uh, that... Those shows that Paul Joyce did, you know, has taken us in a slightly different, you know, let's go with his vision for a bit. Where would that put John Nathan Turner? Mm -hmm. His vision. What interests me, though, about this is that we've had very um, perceptive and highly principled talks about um, something very artistic. And what we're talking about is a piece of ephemera, a piece of popular culture. And what I like about this is that there are a lot of people with your artistic drive and rigour who would not be interested in doing that for the great unwashed, for the general public. But what's, what I really like about this is that you're talking about trying to bring that to something that is not elitist, but is by its very nature popular culture. Well, remember that from day one it was clear that we didn't have scripts. So the, the disadvantage of the assignment became its advantage because it meant that Bidmead and I could put our stamp on that immediately. So suddenly it was into territory which I understood, which is the director writes. The fact that it was contorting the system so severely, I didn't quite understand when I went into it. I thought, well, this is, you know... Perhaps this happens a lot, of, a lot of times. You know, you get the back of, back of a cigarette packet for an idea and then, you know, a director comes in and, and you go off and make the show. That's how I would have liked to work. I don't want to be saddled with a bad script, you know. The Dalek comes in and then, you know, he's hit over the head with a hammer and, uh, and the, uh, you know, the electrodes explode. End of episode. Oh, that's great. You know, we'll have to do that, will we? No, not me. I'd prefer the Dalek to come in and say, you know, anyone for tennis? End of episode. Do you know what I mean? Have to do something different. Out of left field. Yeah. yeah. Of course. So, I was already into my territory, but I didn't realise that I was actually in quicksand. And what I thought was ground that I could make my own it actually turned out to be a swamp, you know, and I just sank. More or less without trace. That was the problem. But those... It needed, the, it, and that, that, was, that was what was missing and is missing in television now, those visionary producers, you know, who can, and who can give a chance. Now, the problem is that we've talked about House of Cards and Breaking Bad and so on. What happens there is that the concept becomes the most important thing. So Fincher and Carl Franklin and James Foley subsume themselves into this, we will contribute our great skills to the unfolding of this story. And then, I mean, Robin Wright, who's directing an episode in episode three, I think, said basically she's dealing with men in suits in rooms. How do you make that? How do you... 
irrevocably stamp that with your with the Robin Wright seal? How do you, you know? I don't know. I don't know. I can't really tell the difference between Carl Franklin and James Foley, but I could if it was a movie. Mm. I'd tell you immediately. Yeah. James Foley is badass, film noir, low life. Carl's black America, sophisticated, humorous. You know, there's immediate difference. Yeah. Here, I can't tell. Right, now that's interesting, you know. I'm a perceptive director who's not working in, in that uh, area where I could make a great contribution now, you know? Mm-hmm. In the casting, in the psychology and everything. I'm denied it, but I know what's going on. I can see it because I watch it. Do you, do you think it wasn't just Doctor Who that's entirely to blame then for the fact that you didn't get... I mean, d- d- now, not in terms of employment stuff, but in terms of where it came from you. Did you go, oh, well, I don't want to do it anymore? No, no, no. I was, I was well out... I, you know, I, I mean, I did a top-end drama after that, which is precisely what John Nathan Turner said I should do. He was quite right. Which was the, a Turgenev adaptation transposed to Ireland. Uh, top-end drama didn't lead anywhere. It's interesting what you say about execs, though, is that I guess an exec has to have the ego to be able to push forward and be in command, and you sometimes need somebody to crack the whip and do that sort of thing, but also have a lack of enough ego to trust his very skilled employees, as it were, to to do what they do, or as you say, why don't they do it all themselves? Andrea Wanfall was a wonderful executive. She died of cancer about ten years ago. She was controller of arts and entertainment at uh, Channel 4. She believed in me, ran down a corridor with a checkbook when I ran out of money on a 90-minute film I was doing on Chris Christopherson. If you want to know from somebody who was at the, really at the centre of things in the 80s and 90s, ask Jeremy Isaacs about me, and you get a very good opinion, you know? And he says, you never had your due, ever, as a director. He regretted that. He didn't, couldn't do much about it, but he regretted it. And I, I, I'm grateful for that. You know, I had the support of very powerful people, but not enough to actually push me up into that, uh, that area. But have you been creatively satisfied in the other areas that you went into? Well, talking to you, of course, I now feel very frustrated that I wasn't doing more of what we've been talking about. But yes, I mean, in painting and photography, and you know, I'm quite well known. And documentary. So what, if, if we were to now have a, 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 a look at Paul Joyce's examples of the things that he has done to say, you know, this is what I stand for, this is what I've achieved, what would we be looking at? That Not a lot. I think most... Uh, I remember I was, Dennis Hopper, the actor, was a great friend. Um, I knew him for 25 years. And he curated a show of, uh, of paintings of mine in Los Angeles five years ago before he died. Where, uh, I mean, Quentin Tarantino, Brian Singer and uh, Michael Connolly are, are all uh, owners of my, of my work. Courtesy of Dennis, because he introduced me to a, a gallery in Santa Monica. Uh, 
he believed that he'd only just started his career when he was dying. He didn't think he'd done anything that was really considerable. That's what creative artists feel, you know, mm. that they haven't really, that they're just starting. I remember Stanley Kubrick on his last film, shortly before he died, said that it, making Eyes Wide Shut, turning the film to the camera, was just like when he was a student for the first time. It's the same thing. Like I was saying to you, you know that sound of the film. It takes you, it's timeless. But is that therefore the eternal thing of the artist, is that if actually it had worked out differently and you had done all this television drama and all this film drama, we'd have been talking and you said, yeah, but I wish I had more time to do the paintings, I sure. wish I'd have done more photography. Probably, yes, there'd always be some regret. Yeah. yeah. Or personal, you know, I didn't give time to my kids or my, my partners or whatever. Yeah, there's always a regret, isn't there? Oh, well, that's when we get into the, the real life, because I, I, I have a conscious thing with my children, is I've, I've missed watching them grow up because I've been on the road and because, uh, you know, if a job comes in, it's always like, oh, I have to get my ex to have them on that weekend yeah, sure. because I've got to do that job, even if it's an episode of Casualty or something. Yeah, sure. So, uh, do we have to be selfish to, to, to do what we do? And does that, does that matter to our children? Do you look at your kids now and go, I wish I'd actually set that time aside? Oh, I'm, I think... I've got to that point. Obviously. Yeah, but I mean, I think the regret is that that time with them was lost for you, you know. Mm. How they felt about it, maybe probably with mum or, you know, with friends or... It probably didn't make that much difference because they were always loved. You know, it's not like I'm saying, oh, I wish I'd love my kids more, you know. It's just a question of time. And I think they understand. Now they've got no time for me. It's because they're so busy. You know, you think, well, okay, you see me once a month. My beloved son, half an hour. You know, no. So you don't. No. Um, I remember when I was making the film on four with Paul Schofield in Dublin. You know, and he came over and he did a week's work there. And, it's great, you know. And we had a script conference, and I remember I was lying on the floor, and he was, and I had a cigar and or a cheroot, and here, and I thought, this is it. This is this is the best you can be. I'm here with Paul Schofield. We're talking about the script. We've suspended shooting until we get it right, and, and this cheroot tastes great. <laughs> so that was it, you know. I had that was my moment of glory. Yeah, but yeah, well, I and also in New York when it became an international Emmy finalist, it was beaten by Das Boot, the German series. Yeah, and uh, Summer Lightning was beaten by Das Boot, and uh, the chairman of the committee came up to me afterwards and said, "Listen, Paul, I have a tremendous apology to make." And I said, "Don't apologise." I said, "Das Boot's always going to beat Summer Lightning." He said, "No, I, what I've got to tell you is that it shouldn't have been in." It was released as a feature film before, which which precluded uh, it. But we we'd already uh, given it out when we ran it. We'd already made the announcement. I would have won the international Emmy. It was disqualified, but they couldn't rescind they couldn't it. Do it. So that's that's a shame because, as you say, 
great that production, but actually it wasn't, it wasn't. When I was out there, I was trying to make contact with Hill Street Blues producer because I loved Hill Street Blues and I, I wanted to do an episode, you know. Well, it's, it's funny because when I was saying to you before about how in the 80s, certainly, we looked down on American yeah. television and I did think, oh, there were exceptions like Hill Street Blues, which was an anomaly in those days from the sort of pap that we got. We exported, you know. Full of characters and funny, strong women and all sorts, you know. I would have loved it. Because it won an award and I was trying to get over to, yeah, you know, it's great show. to say, look, you know, I'm here. But, and if I'd won, I think they probably would have taken some notes. Of it. As I was the loser, you know. Americans don't like losers. No. You want to be the winner. That's a very different sensibility, isn't it? Is that yeah. we, over here, we like the loser in a way. We... It's interesting, I was reading... Um, Robert Mitchum said about Los Angeles, um, it's a town for losers. And I've always thought, well, it's a, ta- it's a town for, you know, where you succeed. Mitchum's point, Robert Mitchum, the actor's point, was um, bums, no-hopers, itinerants arrive in Los Angeles. Mexicans, anyway, arrive hopeful in Los Angeles. Because they couldn't go anywhere else. <laughs> he said it's a town of losers. And out of that comes some winners. But I thought, what an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. See, so you think about uh, Savile, we're talking about Tim. Very good director. And, um, I mean, even the ones who've been consistently working, you know, uh, probably have... Uh, career regrets. Oh, well, I should have. I shouldn't have done that. I should, you know. Yeah. Mine was simply that I didn't have enough chances like that, you know, to um, to develop my t- to develop myself further with, into the medium. It just kind of stopped, you know. Uh, well, I've seen a very interesting development actually. Is is that you've always been? I know, I know you haven't given many interviews, but you, you're attitude to Doctor Who and your time on it has always been very consistent but it's very interesting that I as in you know a young ingenue, a young sort of 20 year old uh, approaching people and talking to them quite a lot few people then were very dismissive of Doctor Who and 25 years later the very same people now that Doctor Who is hugely successful again put Doctor Who at the top of their CV actor friends of mine who used to not put Doctor Who in their theatre credits now put Doctor Who at the top and you go well you're sort of riding with what is popular. Well, because Doctor Who for years was a dirty word in, in television. I know. I, I always knew that what I'd done was good. I'm not about here. I knew it was different. I could tell. People told me. I didn't, you know. It was clear. It was virtually impenetrable as a story. You had to see it two or three times. There was extraordinarily strange things, like this moment where Tom meets one of the creatures, the young creatures, and they, they kind of reach across a generation. Gap. Yes. Cocteau, poetry, it's nothing. It's not, it's not a plot point. It doesn't make, you know, Nathan Turner would have said, what the f*** is that about, you know? It's poetry, John, you know. It's pure visual poetry, unspoken. 
across the universe and time. That's what you, you're trying to do. To conjure something which is almost impossible to put into words in a medium which kids are watching. But doesn't, isn't that right? Isn't that why I watched it when I was six or seven? Yeah. I didn't quite understand it. I yeah. still watch it now. And yeah. still there are bits that beguile me and surprise me and baffle me, but are well made enough and interesting enough to bring me back every time, which I wouldn't do with an episode of Casualty or I wouldn't no, no. do with... Well, that's why, it's a, that's why we're talking. 35 years on, that's why we're talking. It stood the test of time. Which is great, you know, that, that's what I wanted it to do. Although I never thought that, you know, 35 years later I'd be, you know, talking, still talking about it. But it's as if it's still living somehow. You know, it's still a living episode, those episodes still live. Yeah. In a curious way. And they live in the minds of the people, the perceptive people who've seen them. You know, it's like, it doesn't go away, is it? When you think of the machinery behind all that, you know, it's, it's quite complicated and very expensive, those shows like that. Mm. You know. So it is a privilege to, to be invited into it. The disappointment is that they don't see what they've got. You know. well, they, it was interesting, you were, I, I was reading about this, you, were, you seemed to be regarded as slightly maverick because you requested the handheld camera and you requested, you wanted to do the scene sync technology, you think? Why is that regarded as maverick when somebody's producing the only science fiction show on the BBC that they want to use the most modern technology? The idea that within that system that seemed to be an anomaly yeah. strikes me as absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Well, it's difficult. it's difficult because the camera is wanted for match of the day. There's only one in the building, you know. So why does he want it? Why can't we... we he's got five... Studio camera, you can't get it up the uh, up the rig, can you? No. Yeah. But there seem to be pitfall. We've talked about both sides when you were there and how it is now. One is now much more ex- executive led, and there's no there's no infrastructure, there's no BBC Radiophonics workshops, no B- BBC Visual Effects department. So we've lost all of that, which was part of that system that you butted heads with. Sure. So which. Uh, the, which is the lesser of the two evils then is, is do we make did we make better television then in spite of the system or is it better now but we don't have that infrastructure well I mean the infrastructure is freelance isn't it you know David Heyman made his film uh, Gravity was it yeah um, great great producer you know entirely in a, in a facility house in, in Soho whole film you know months I'm happy to do that. But you give me the facilities. The problem is that your transmission is in three weeks' time, you know, and you've got to cut four episodes together and get it on air. That's, that was the reality. David Heyman presumably could take another six months if he wanted. They say, you know, well, it's, we got the release for March. He said, well, it's going to be September, if, it, if that happened, and they needed the time. That's when you're a great producer, and... You know, you have the, that great authority. Yeah. I was never, apart from David Rose, I was never working with a great producer with that money and that authority. No. It'd be fantastic to have that. But you've got to be a sort of genius, haven't you? You've got to be a genius nowadays and, and command millions and millions and deliver films which make millions and millions. So we're back at yours. 
uh, after a lovely lunch, uh, and we had a look at um, Stephen Gallagher's riposte to your interview in that uh, yeah. magazine. Well, um, Stephen has diligently kept or reprinted notes of around that time, indicating that he was working on various versions of the of the script, which I wouldn't I wouldn't dispute for a moment. Um, all I've ever said is that what I was presented with was in no way material that was suitable. And uh, I can see that he had a history with Bidmead and with John Nathan Turner for some months prior to my engagement as a director. And um, as I recall, when I was interviewed as a potential director... Bidmead either showed me something very short, which was a scenario of the story, or described it to me, and I, it sounded very interesting. But after that, until I joined in pre-production, which is when you have an office and you start to cast it, requests for the screenplay, for the script uh, of the four episodes as I remember, didn't lead to any arrival of, of lengthy materials on my desk, to the point that we were, we'd cast it, and we, you know, I'd had discussions with, I'd already had a kind of concept, you know, we were on a, a, a spacecraft in, in deeper space and so on, so I, I knew there was going to be an area where there was a whiteout and apparently nothing except a gateway and so on. So I employed an artist friend of mine called D.H. Smith to do the design of the gateway, which John Nathan Turner subsequently stole from the BBC or acquired in some way. And... Um, The date towards formal rehearsals with Tom and Lala Ward and the actors I cast was approaching, and we still didn't have a script. So, as I recall, and remember that we're going back more or less 35 years, um, it was decided, and I... I think that meeting would have been with Nathan Turner and Bid Mead and myself, the so to speak principles involved, that um, I would take one week out of my rehearsal, I would lose, effectively, lose one week of my rehearsal period, that everybody would be told to not come in that week, and that Bid Mead and I would work on what material was existing from Gallagher to put it into some kind of shape so that we could at least start to rehearse it in a week's time. So basically we had a week and a weekend, so that would be seven or eight, nine days. And Bidmead lived in uh, somewhere in, I think, North London or West London, and I, had, I lived in Chelsea, and I had a, a bike, and so I cycled to... Um, his house. He remembers that. In Sandwich. And I um, 
every day we work. You know, a, a full day and well into the evening, usually. Um, and my recollection is, is not of the material uh, like Gallagher, uh, Gallagher's riposte indicates was on his machine or on his desk. Because if we had material as detailed as that, it looks to me like we would have had something at least to rehearse with. And as I recall, whether it was Bidmead deliberately withholding the material, or my memory, and my memory is pretty good, so I think it's not that. I just remember a detailed treatment and nothing much else. Now, if Bidmead ha was sitting on the scripts and pulling out the sections that he thought were relevant to a, a, a complete rewrite, then he might have been doing that, because he and I were writing in tandem. And so he, we would sit down and write, uh, if there was a char two characters in dialogue, he'd take one character and I'd take the other. And we'd write out the scene and then discuss it and laugh about it, and then... I'd have a go at his character, and he'd have a go at mine, and we'd polish it. That was how we worked. Well, if we were working from Gallagher's... Uh, Gallagher is a very talented writer without a sense of humour. I'm an untalented writer with a sense of humour. I don't see the two <laughs> coalescing, you know, in any sensible form um, extant before I arrived, or indeed while I was there. What came out, came out of what Bidmead and I did with the ideas of Stevens, which were very good. But there was never a workable script. Otherwise, why would a director give up a whole week of very, very... I mean, during that week, it's not just that you're getting to know your cast and they're getting to understand how you think and that it's supposed to be funny. You know, that's the first thing. They look at you and say, is this supposed to be funny? You say, yeah. Life is a terrible black joke. So everything I do has that in it. So let's go from there. So that's day one. Then you work on from there, don't you? You start to deal with individual characterization. You start to deal with the um, technical problems of dealing with a ship that's got gantries and walkways and doors that are supposed to open automatically that don't and, and how you're going to shoot it. All that's done in the first week. If you're deprived of that week, uh, you, and you're exhausted from having done eight or nine days solidly writing, and there you are with your fresh scripts, you've lost that week, and you're, it's like, you know, sort of starting a day's work where you haven't had any sleep, isn't it? You start on the wrong foot, so to speak. So that's how I started, Doctor, on the wrong foot with a script, which we'd written, not Gallagher's, without any adequate rehearsal. And it went, you know, from bad to worse, because then, then the, the set was deemed to be uh, unsafe when we started the shoot, so we lost at least two days on uh, safety checks on the set. So we were always behind. And so when people say, oh, he panicked, he was having a breakdown, he was doing... All I was doing was running about, trying in an increasingly short space of time, to complete what should have been done in a barely adequate amount of time. That's what 
I was facing. And away from Doctor Who, I've just looked at um, uh, a series of portraits you did of <laughs> names you could easily have dropped. <laughs> As well, we've already we've talked about Samuel Beckett, but Quentin Tarantino, Johnny Cash, beautiful picture of Eartha Kitt. So yeah, yeah. you've you've had access to the the great and good of of the creative world, and you've you've captured. I'm trying to capture verbal snippets of people, but you've you've captured their uh, physiognomies in a very artistic and, and character reflecting way so uh, tell me about some of the people you photographed and your approach to that well my approach is um and i'm old enough now not not to uh have any false modesty about what what i not what i achieve what i aim to what i set out to achieve what i want to do is to shoot when and i i've not often, but I, in a situation where I am shooting a landscape and Charlie Waite is there or shooting a portrait and Ter- Terence Donovan is there or whatever, I'd let them all do whatever they want and then just give me the chance. Because what I want with that landscape or that portrait, which are the two things that I do, mainly, as a photographer, landscape and portrait, I want to end up with the image that you will remember that you will remember that person by. That's my aim. Of course, I don't always achieve it. But that's what I want to do. To end up with something which is unusual, um, psychologically insightful, with time and luck and circumstance on your side. So that you, as as time goes by, people will remember Tarantino young Tarantino from that photograph. Or an old Dirk Bogart from the photograph I did. Yeah. And so on. And Eartha Kitt was a particularly um, not interesting but accidental encounter at um, the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel which is uh, on um, Sunset Boulevard. Bogart's, uh, Humphrey Bogart's favourite hotel. Uh, now open to the, the great unwashed on tour parties, but they had a pool which David Hockney had painted. I mean, he'd physically painted the the uh, pool itself, as he had done his own pool at, at his home. So he painted waves and um, the movement of water. He painted on the uh, the base of the pool, then the water had been put in it, and. Uh, he was commissioned by the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel to uh, to do that, uh, which he had done, and we, he invited me as his guest there to for the the grand opening, which is when you know someone dived in and they served canopies or whatever. And I found this pretty boring, as indeed did he. So I wandered off during the you know when the mayor was there, sort of rabbiting on, and. Uh, Rather like the Chateau Marmont, another favourite haunt of mine. There are there are kind of huts and and um, uh, chairs and chaise longues and things around the pool, and um, I recognised this black lady there. I thought that's surely as a kid, and she was just sitting, sort of staring into the sunset. And I, 
I remember Tom Stoppard said when I gave him the Samuel Beckett picture, how on earth did you get the, find the balls to ask Beckett, you know, pose for it? Well, I don't have a problem with that. You just go up and you say, can I take your photo? You know. And that's what I did with Ursa. I didn't know... She didn't know me. I recognised her as a great artist, a wonderful singer, and ex-wife of Orson Welles. I mean, who wouldn't want to talk to Ursa Kier? She looked, though, as if she was uh, wanting to be um, left in peace. So I did it with great... Uh, uh, it's very tentative, my approach. Uh, but she was extremely pleasant. And she, she said, what are you doing here? And I explained my connection with David, which, you know, I'd, I'd done one book and I was doing another on him, with him. And um, she didn't seem that interested. She was into her own thoughts and... Uh, she started to tell me about her family life. It was something to do with, as I recall, her daughter. There was some sadness in the family. Um, and I, I found that she was sharing this personal uh, remembrance, which was the reason why her expression was distant and, and sad. And I was as sympathetic as you can be with a total stranger telling you something intimate about a bad period in their family history. And I said, um, when she reached a pause, I said, would, would you mind if I took a, a, your portrait? I had a camera with me because I was recording Hockney and she didn't seem to mind. She said, what do you want me to do? And I simply said, well, be as you were when I first saw you. Just go into your own thoughts. So she obviously went back to this, um, the sad event which had, so to speak, precipitated our meeting and which she told me a bit about. That's when I took the picture. And shortly after that I left and I never saw her again. But that, uh, that was... It wasn't lucky coincidence because it was a sad moment for her. It was a lucky one for me that she was um, trusting enough to give me that, to allow me that image of her. And um, that's, I mean, as a director or as a photographer, I think you have to have those sensitivities. The problem is you have to guard those sensitivities very carefully, otherwise they get eroded or cynicised. And you've got to be tough as old boot, you know? So you, you have these two things, and it's extremely difficult. So the Doctor Who was a, a test of, of both of those things, of both of those extremes, which tested me nearly to the limit. Uh, you don't want to get into that situation. You want one or other to be tested, mm. not both. That's the point. Well, and they're not close bedfellows either, are they? Really? I mean, that's that's the that's the eternal difficulty of, yeah. of any creative endeavour is that you have to have the that side of you that has that creative streak, but then you have to have the bloody mindedness and 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 uh, uh, that carapace of uh, uh, that 
protection. Well, you have to have the tenacity to see it through, yeah. really. Yeah. And like an armour plating, you know, just drive through doorways and, you know, bullets and everything to, to, to achieve that. Guarding that, the sensitive side, all the while. Yeah, it's tricky. It's very tricky. And what about real life then? What's, what, what lessons have you learned from real life outside of... What, life? real life? Yeah. Oh, uh, when, you're depa- when your um, partner demands the house, give it to them. Give them the house. Give them whatever they want. If you've got a problem with your partner, particularly if it's a woman, say, ask them what they want. Ask them what they desire. And make sure they get it. And if that's the gardener or someone down the road, or say, it's fine. I always remember a great friend of mine, a, a, an Oscar-winning production designer, um, who was married for some years to a wonderful French lady, who asked him for a divorce. Because he wanted to work in Hollywood and she wanted to work in Paris. He said, of course. She said, what? She said, don't you love me? He said, yes, of course I do. I said to him, why, why were you so quick? He said, if a woman wants a divorce, what the f*** are you going to say? You go down on your knees, you look like an oh, oh, don't leave me, no, please. Oh, oh, what do I... So, of course. So he gave her the divorce, and five years later they remarried. Hmm. Give them what they want. If they want the house, give it to them. Try and keep 10% if you can. If you're lucky, you'll get 12, like me. So, uh, just give the ladies what they want. And, and spend as much time with your kids, if you have them. Well, look... Thank you very much for your time. I have the two final questions, one of which I warned you about, one of which I didn't. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, the first one is the charity. What's the charity? Because you've kindly given your time. Um, what charity would you like to benefit from people that listen to this when it comes out? I do voluntary work for Oxfam. Their philosophy of helping, you know, particularly Africa and the countries that I will never visit and wouldn't be able to have a personal input into. Um, it seems its reach seems to be quite broad in the world. Uh, I'm sure there are many others, but um, uh, what little expertise I've gained in in property purchase, acquisition, and resale, I tried to help them with in terms of finding uh, shops in South London. So, but my main um, my main work there is simply as a volunteer in one of the shops. Uh, I normally do most of a Saturday there and have done for about eight or nine years. It's just my way of um, giving a little back, really. And we convened here for a, a, a number of reasons, but the, 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 the jumping-off point was to talk about Doctor Who, and this whole thing was initiated because Doctor Who has lasted 50 years. So, and I'm sure you've encountered a few of them, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there who still follow the show and, and are still interested in the work that you did all those years ago? Get a life. <laughs> and that is said without a smirk as well. <laughs> Paul Joyce, thank you very much. My great pleasure. Um, well, we're sort of, uh, we finished main part of the interview, Toby and so on, and we're dri- I'm driving you to the station and I'm thinking, because um, you've shown me the, uh, 
the quite detailed information that Stephen Gallagher has put online and so on of the stages of the script as, as he recalls them being done and they they certainly didn't didn't come across my desk it and I'm trying to think why uh, one would uh, as a director one would get into a situation where you you're casting and you're moving towards the first week of rehearsals and you still don't have a script and I recall going into a room with Chris Bidmead and uh, starting pretty much from scratch the, the four episodes. And it, it just could be, I'm speculating, that the producer, John Nathan Turner, was continuously and continually unhappy with the versions that Gallagher and Bidmead had come up with right to the point of the shoot. And it, it might be the reason that I didn't get a script was because Nathan Turner objected to it and said, this isn't going to fly. And said to Bidmead, you've got to, you're a script editor, you fix it. Bidmead would have said, well, we're into, you know, Paul Joyce has joined us, we're into this rehearsal time. And Nathan Turner might have said, well, take the first week and knock it into shape. Paul's a writer as well. Fix it. Make sure it makes sense. Perhaps he felt that it just wasn't up to what he wanted or what he had instructed Bidmead to ensure was delivered. And if that was the case, then that would explain why I never saw one, never saw a script, that Nathan Turner vetoed it and said, go away and fix it. If you really want to spend a bit of time, have a look at Gallagher's best job and ours, and then you see what the difference is. I, I'm simply not going there. I don't want to do that. Yeah. But there's there's no Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He's got no humor. He hasn't got a sense of humor, Steve. He wouldn't do that. I mean, he, he did some quite funny uh, lines from the computer at one stage. Because I, uh, you know, while we were writing, I said, get it to Bidmead. I said, get him to, um, do you want to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it on still? He said, um, during the uh, time we were writing, uh, I mean, I was sort of wondering what Stephen Gallagher was up to. We were <laughs> writing the script, you know, what's Gallagher doing? And I said, look, to Chris Bidmead, I said, look, well, I tell you what we, I'm going to need. Uh, when they're on the ship, when they're on this thing, there are going to be computers. It's like to, uh, HAL in 2001, right? What I, I'd like some sort of a computer speak to come out of various machines, you know? What we should be doing, the state, you know, how, what the temperature is, you know, what life on Earth is like, you know, what it's like being hell too, whatever. Just write anything, anything. And as I recall, um, some stuff came back. I don't think we ever used it, but it was quite amusing. It was like, it precisely what I'd asked for. Stephen had come up with these good lines from, you know, sort of from the technology available at the time. I said, give them a personality, make them, you know, say, well, I, you know, I'm hungry too. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, just make it. And so he came up with a, with a bit of stuff like that, which is quite funny. But I don't think we ever got a chance to use, to use it. Thanks to Paul. I love the idea that uh, Doctor Who fan might one day go into Oxfam and uh, buy an old Beano annual off the director of Warrior's Gate and not realise it 
Uh, I had a great time in Paul's company, which is why in the end that was three parts, but uh, each one fascinating. Uh, Oxfam, of course, uh, you can find online. Uh, Oxfam, uh, O-X-F-A-M, oxfam.org.uk, www.oxfam.org.uk. Um, okay, well, that's it for now. Uh, do tune into the next one, which uh, is an actor who's very, very funny. I know you'll have a good time with him. Well-known actor, too. So, uh, yeah, bit of a coup. Very happy. Uh, two doctors. Uh, a, a bit of rudeness about a director. And uh, and uh, a lot of fun. So, um, that's next time. Bye-bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. You want to know why I did it? Come closer, I'll tell you. The reason is because I am a master. Doctor Who, Vampire of the Mind. I've had an email too. <sighs> My application was fast-tracked. It seems I've been accepted. They're setting up a laboratory for me. What? The place has been empty for years. Must be halfway to falling down by now. It was always a weird place. Oh, Dr. Scott, it's you. Dr. Threadstone. It's Heather. Uh, Damien, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Call me Damien. Uh, oh, there's a, there's a figure. Several figures. I, I, I can't quite make them out. But there is something odd about them. They're, they're moving like... Like they're, they're in a daze. Pale as corpses, they said, wandering about in a trance like. Since then, you'll be lucky to find anyone who'll go near the place after dark. <laughs> Doctor! Doctor, oh. do something! Help me! Don't worry, Heather! I will! <laughs> Somehow! You really won't, you know. But don't you worry, Doctor. It'll be your turn soon enough. Big Finish. We love stories. I'm a Time Lord. Of course I'm inhuman. <laughs> <laughs>